Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this, the latest episode of the Policy Dispatch, courtesy of Foresight Climate and Energy. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. Air travel has made the world a smaller place for more of humankind than at any point in history, but it is also helping to make the world a warmer place thanks to the climate impact of jet planes. Aviation carbon emissions account for more than 2% of the globe's total, meaning it ranks among the world's biggest emitters. Take into account non-CO2 and that share goes up further still. Unlike road transport, where decarbonisation options are now blindingly obvious, it is less clear what the future holds for air travel. Technology needs to be developed, scaled up and deployed if emission-free flight is to go from utopian dream to ubiquitous reality. That requires, you guessed it, policies. Today's episode will look into what is needed to move airlines away from polluting kerosene. Now, before we kick off this dispatch, a quick quiz for you. According to the United Nations... If aviation were a country, which of the following nations would it equal in terms of CO2 pollution? Is it Brazil, Canada, or Germany? Stay tuned to find out the answer at the end of the show. So, what are governments doing to incentivise low-carbon flight? And what is the outlook in general for green aviation? To make sense of all this and more, I'm joined today by Joe Darden, who heads up aviation policy at Clean Mobility Group Transport and Environment. Uh, hi, Joe. Welcome to the Policy Dispatch. Thank you for joining us. You're our fourth guest. So uh, welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. So we're going to be talking all about aviation today, your um, your specialist subject. Indeed. Um, I guess we kick off with um, aviation was probably one of the most visibly affected sectors, shall we say, um, during the COVID pandemic. You know, the skies were clear and, and there were all these headlines about how flights were cancelled, would it recover and everything. Um, what is the sort of state of play now? Has it had a permanent impact on, um, you know, number of flights or are we recovering to like a pre-pandemic level? Um, what's the sort of state of play there? Mm. So in terms of current uh, state of flights and, and emissions, uh, so indeed, as you said, in 2020, you know, airline pollution fell quite significantly because most of um, the flights were grounded. Most of the planes were grounded, stuck on the tarmac. Um, so I think airline pollution in 2020 uh, plummeted uh, like 64 percent um, in total. But then gradually traffic um, started back up again. And I think this year was, let's say, the best year since COVID uh, for EU airlines. I think we're close to 90% of traffic compared to pre-COVID levels. Um, so in a sense, we are seeing traffic bouncing back. And I think some issues that uh, we all have seen over the, the summer holidays, you know, um, some airlines and some parts of the industry struggling to deal with uh, bump up, bumped up demand. Uh, and, and dealing with also the yeah the aftermath of, of COVID and the impact that it had on, on staff and employment. Um, so so yeah we're, we're seeing traffic bounce back. I think mostly on on let's say more domestic intra EU markets. I think on some international routes uh, traffic is still let's say lower. I think because mainly some third countries still have 
especially in Asia, still have some strict, um, let's say, uh, traveling uh, requirements. Um, so, but what what we hear from the industry is that they're expecting a full recovery to 2019 levels by 2024. So we'll continue seeing, let's say, traffic bounce back, maybe not equally across all airlines, but at least in general um, in the next two years. Mm-hmm. It's, I guess it's kind of interesting to look back on that 2020 period where for so many things to do with energy and climate and transport, there was a little bit of optimism from certain people about how uh, problems like emissions would be taken care of by the pandemic. You know, There would not be a return to business as normal. But I guess from from what you're saying, the aviation sector is is returning to the point it was at. Um, I mean, what what kind of policies then are in place, are going to be in place in Europe and around the world that um, aim to bring down aviation emissions, regulate them, manage them, and, and so on? What, what are the big um, flagship policies? Mm. Um, maybe just, just before then, bouncing back on, on what you just said in terms <laughs> of um, the, the emissions coming back to you know, pre-COVID levels in 2024, that's kind of what we said already in 2019, and tw- uh, sorry, in 2020. Mm-hmm. When flights were grounded, we said, you know, the aviation sector, of course, maybe this crisis um, is, is bigger than the ones that um, the aviation sector has known in the past. But, you know, we had the terrorist attacks. There was also this volcano eruption back right. in, I think, 2016. <laughs> so, you know, the aviation sector has always known these, let's say, spontaneous or, mom, you know, little moments of uh, little phases of um, reduced traffic or because of economic down, uh, turmoil or uh, other um, reasons. But the thing is that the aviation sector always bounces back, mostly because it is under-regulated and overly subsidized. Mm-hmm. And we saw that during the COVID um, pandemic as well. Lufthansa, Air France, um, other big airlines, not just in Europe, but also in, in the world, in the US, uh, in, in Asia as well receiving huge bailout packages uh, to try and um, save them from um, from basically uh, yeah, bankruptcy, losing <laughs> bankruptcy. Exactly. So mm-hmm. saving airlines from, from bankruptcy by continuing to, to finance them, but without any proper conditions on building back better and right. being greener. And we have seen, and I have to be quite positive uh, sometimes, but we have seen airlines since COVID change their narrative a bit. Mm-hmm. So focusing a bit more on not just whether they can decarbonize, but when mm-hmm. um, and which pathway use, to use. And I think that's that's an interesting shift because they understand now that they can't do whatever they want anymore mm-hmm. and that governments are rightly so, uh, thinking about regulating the sector a bit more and addressing emissions and, you know, the unfair treatment that airlines and the aviation sector as a whole have been um, benefiting from over the past decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to come on your question about uh, the the regulation around the sector globally, um, for to deal with aviation's environmental impact, um, there is pr- practically none, <laughs> I have mm-hmm. to be honest. I mean, um, the main, let's say, uh, body in, 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 in charge of dealing with aviation emissions at the global level is uh, the UN agency called ICAO, mm-hmm. so this International Civil Aviation Organization. Um, and ICAO was a great institution at the start uh, to deal with 
aviation safety rules, security, air traffic rights. So it played a huge role in trying to liberalize basically the aviation market, making it easier for flights to go from different points in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, of course, you had to have proper safety rules, security rules, you know, recognizing the different uh, security standards across across the world. So ICAO fundamentally was set up to promote and protect the industry. Um, so now that it, it was tasked maybe a few decades ago with the, the objective of also dealing with the sector's environmental impact, that's when it, were, it went pear-shaped because yeah. fundamentally uh, you have transport ministries sitting around a table trying to discuss how to address aviation's climate impact. Um, and it is counterintuitive to the duty of a transport minister uh, that is to promote and protect its industry. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. um, so we end up with uh, policies that are way too weak um, in principle, but also in practice. Mm-hmm. And one of the main policies that you have, sorry, uh, the main policy that you have is Corsia. Mm-hmm. So this uh, carbon offsetting scheme um, that uh, the IKO, uh, I think, uh, adopted back in, in 2016 after pressure from the EU um, to regulate aviation emissions on long-haul flights. Um, IKO came up with, with a scheme, which basically is a cheap offsetting scheme that mm-hmm. allows aviation emissions to continue growing. Um, and that's one of the issues as well at the IKO level is that you have 193 states uh, sitting around a table. And among those, you have those developed countries that have been enjoying, let's say, freedom of circulation, freedom of growing their own industry for decades. And then you have developing countries like India, China, Brazil, that are starting to see their industry grow and feel that it's unfair that they um, carry the burden of the, the climate impact of all these flights that have been happening in the developed world. Right. Um so, so the solution was to come up with an offsetting scheme um, that basically forces airline to, airlines to buy a certain level of offsets or a certain number of offsets to compensate for the growth in their emissions according to a specific baseline. Um, so as I just said, they're offsetting growth and not actual emissions. So if you grow you know, fast, then you have to maybe offset more. If you grow less fast, you'll offset less, but in total, you're not covering your actual emissions, but only mm-hmm. the growth. Um, and when you look at the act, I can speak for hours why Corsia is is a very poor, let's say useless mechanism, mm-hmm. um, especially when you look at the, the climate crisis that we're facing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two main reasons why it doesn't work, the, in principle and in practice. In principle, because since the Paris Agreement, everyone and every country, every sector of the economy needs to meet a temperature target. Mm-hmm. So everyone has to commit to a certain level of emission reduction. So there's really little space for offsetting like we had in the past with the Kyoto Protocol, uh, for example, where it still allowed developed countries to buy some uh, you know, emission reductions from, developed, um, from developing countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's actually in that era that Corsia's mechanism was, you know, developed and, and thought of, thought of. So, um, it was pre Paris agreement era. And then the Paris agreement came in and said, no, everyone has to commit to a, a temperature target. And so 
offsetting doesn't really have that much of a space in in that, let's say, um, toolbox of climate uh, mitigation. Right, because it's about neutralizing emissions rather than getting one getting rid of them. Right, it's. It, it, it well off, uh, offsetting the growth yeah. is not getting down to zero no. uh, definitely not no. um so so that's the the, the issue that we have with Corsia mm-hmm. and in principle and then in practice um there are also a number of issues uh with the the kind of offsets that you're buying um mm-hmm. one of the main reasons that uh, offsetting or many, the main characteristics of offsetting for it to work is that you have to make sure that the offset that you're buying actually one is permanent so you can actually re- permanently delete uh, a ton of co2 that you're emitting mm-hmm. um you have to avoid it being double counted in climate pledges um and most of the offsets that are being uh, allowed under corsia programs uh, don't meet all of these criteria Mm-hmm. especially when you look at nature-based offsets. So, for example, offsets that say, okay, going to plant a few trees here and there, mm-hmm. uh, or you're going to sell um, an avoidance offsets of deforestation. So you're going to basically say, I've avoided three trees being cut off this year, so I'm going to give you, you know, three tons of CO2 worth of credit. Mm-hmm. Those are the kind of offsetting mechanisms that you have on, under Corsia. Um, and and the issue is that now that we're facing you know extreme weather, we're facing you know drought, fires, hurricanes. How can you guarantee that the tree that you're planting is going to stay there and absorb the CO2 that you're emitting for all of the hundred of years that it's going to continue um, right. living in the atmosphere? Um, so all in all, you know, that's that's the the issue we have. And then the last issue is that unfortunately it's regulated by a bunch of transport ministers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so of course anything and there's also a lot of um let's say corporate capture of this organization with industry bodies being there and, and lobbying their transport ministries to weaken the measures as much as possible. Um and you end up with re- a reduction of the baseline above which emissions now need to be uh, to mm-hmm. be offset. And in total, you're going to end up in, in 2030 with only 22% of all international aviation emissions actually needing to be offset, mm-hmm. which is crazy when you think about it, when you're actually then, on the other hand, committing to reducing your emissions and getting to net zero. Um, there's a form of like hypocrisy within, mm-hmm. uh, within IKO and transport ministries around Corsia. Um, which uh, unfortunately means that we can't really rely on an international body to regulate uh, aviation emissions. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just €29. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe follow the link in the show notes now back to the show it does seem a bit like building castles on sand you know there's putting a lot of faith like you say in these offsetting things where a forest fire can get rid of an entire you know mm-hmm. decade of, of growth of aviation emissions or something mm-hmm. um i mean if we if we switch to something like emissions trading for example i mean mm-hmm. um the eu emissions trading scheme um, includes aviation to an extent 
um, intra-EU flights. Correct me if I'm wrong mm-hmm. on any of this, of course. Um, international <laughs> aviation was supposed to be included in the beginning, but that was lobbied out of it. Um, but we are in this period of updating the ETS rules or things like you mm-hmm. know, the amount of permits that are included in the system, what, sh- what should be regulated, maritime is going to be included in the, sec- in the, in the market for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. How are the rules regarding aviation changing are they are there positive developments in the works or or again um is not enough being done to to actually bring down aviation emissions mm. so uh, i think the, the revision of the ets that was proposed by by the commission um in in its fit for 55 uh, package was better than what um existed before but it's still you know not uh, up for the challenge of addressing mm-hmm. aviation's climate impacted total I think the main issue that um, we faced with aviation in the ETS is that the ETS as a whole um, wasn't really effective to um, reduce aviation emissions because the price of the ETS until, you know, 2018 um, or 2019 was still too low to incentivize any change. Um, And I think it's only now that we're seeing the price of the ETS through revisions of the general ETS and the Mm -hmm. carbon market as a whole. We're seeing that impact trickle through the price of the ETS, which is positive because that's the the goal is to make polluting more expensive so you can phase in cleaner alternatives. Um, One of the issues as well that the ETS had when it came came to aviation is that um, airlines received half of their emissions uh, quotas for free. Mm-hmm. So they didn't need to buy and pay the full price tag of their pollution. Um, and the final uh, issue and the biggest issue is that it only addresses 40% of aviation's total emissions um, from Europe because it only focuses on intra-EU flights. And that's something, unfortunately, that's been you know slightly swept on, uh, under the carpet for, for um, um, a few decades because Everyone believes that long haul flights, well, you know, they're international flights, so they need to be dealt with at international level. And we've already discussed why the international level is lacking in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and we end up with a, C, this, a scheme, uh, the ETS, that actually only addresses uh, short haul flights, not the ones that actually pollute the most. Because, um, as you know, if you fly long haul, you uh, consume um, more fossil fuel. And so you burn more fossil fuel, you produce more emissions. Um, And long haul flights is where uh, most of the emissions come from. Uh, I think 6% of flights uh, from Europe actually cause more than half of uh, the emissions um, linked to uh, burning kerosene. Mm -hmm. So, So in that sense, I think when we come to the revision so the revision proposed by the commission, you know, it was positive in, in one uh, respect because it um, reduced the amount of free allowances. It phased down the amount of free allowances that were going to give um, that were going to be given to airlines. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it was still only focusing on intra-EU um, and not addressing a part of long-haul flights departing from, from Europe. Um, and this was a problem as well, because as part of this package, you also not only had the ETS, but you also had an initiative to mandate um, the use of sustainable aviation fuel. Mm-hmm. And that mandate actually applies for all departing flights. So on the one hand, the commission was saying we can regulate the content of the fuel that we're going to sell all types of airlines leaving our territory. But on the other hand, it was saying, well, 
we're not going to price the emissions linked to the fuel that we're actually sending to these airlines, mm-hmm. which is contradictory. You need both, uh, especially to come down to zero. You need to make sure you phase out the use of fossil kerosene and that you phase in the use of sustainable alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so that was the main issue with the, the ETS proposal. And the, the second one was linked to the fact that it ignored a big chunk of aviation's climate impact, which is linked to its non-CO2 effects. And um, now non-CO2 effects are basically linked to some particle, um, some, some particulate matter that's um, emitted as a, a certain level of the atmosphere mm-hmm. uh, that causes contrails. And so these contrails have a warming effect uh, that basically, uh, let's say, is more important than the CO2 emissions alone. Um, in total, scientists have shown that um, non-CO2 effects actually two-thirds of aviation's total climate impact. And yet it was nowhere to be found <laughs> in any of this, these regulations. So, um, And the reason that, given for, the, for its exclusion? Have, have they made it clear why it isn't included? There's not enough data? or I mean, you already said there is enough data, but what was the reason? Indeed. Indeed, I think there was this belief that there was still too much uncertainty because mm-hmm. it's linked to, um, you know, climate models, uh, climate calculations, because there is uncertainty because we don't really know exactly how or when non-CO2 effects are created um, because it's really, it reacts um, depending on the weather, the humidity, the time of day, and not all flights have the same non-CO2 effects. And most of the non-CO2 effects happen on night flights, for example, um, over the atmosphere that's quite humid when it's quite cold, because that's when the particulate matter freezes mm-hmm. and creates these contrails. Um, so, so of course, there was uncertainty in t- concerning maybe where these effects happen, but the climate impact is known. It's and clear. I think that mm-hmm. changed um, over the past two years uh, since the European Safety Agency published a, a report in, in 2020, I think, um, or 2021, where it showed and confirmed that actually non-CO2 effects are one of the biggest um, issues of aviation's climate problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so so now people understand a bit more that we need to, to deal with it, but um, uh, regulators are always a bit, uh, let's say, uh, uh, a bit, um, how can I say, anxious mm. uh, of proposing legislation. But, uh, you know, there, there are loads of different options, which is also the beauty of non-CO2 effects. There are loads of different options you can uh, you can use to try and reduce these effects. The mm. first one being, of course, replacing the fuel, uh, replacing kerosene mm-hmm. by some cleaner alternative. Um, so either by sustainable aviation fuels, so SAF, Mm-hmm. Uh, because SAF has less particulate matter, less it creates less soot, so it doesn't create as many contrails and persistent contrails. Um, but you can also lower the current aromatic level of kerosene. So mm-hmm. kerosene at the moment, so if we follow you know, regulation, aviation is still going to be at least 95% reliant on fossil-based fuels like kerosene. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we clean up kerosene by uh, reducing the aromatics uh, in, within that fuel to mm-hmm. then basically have a p- positive impact on non-CO2 effects? Um, and that's something that we're encouraging and that we hope you know, uh, the commission and governments will look into to try and regulate the quality of the kerosene that's being sold. Because if you improve that, then you can reduce contrails. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, um, if, I, if I just ask you about yeah. a, a few few other policies that have made the you know various attractive headlines over the years, you know, banning private jets and uh, banning mm-hmm. certain short haul flight routes, um, I, Air France's bailout included certain provisions to to get rid of some of their short haul flights. Right? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you could speak to the the effectiveness of that and whether or not it's something that um, you think other airlines should. Uh, mirror and, and whether or not it's actually effective, or, or if it was not as um, mm. as good as it sounded at first. <laughs> no, I think in general it's positive and encouraging to see um, some countries trying to push regulation of aviation emissions. Now they don't use the best um, uh, the best options uh, mm-hmm. always. Um, I think so. If we go to, to banning short-haul flights. So indeed, Air France, the Air France bailout basically had some conditions around trying to shift um, domestic routes towards uh, rail alternatives. Um, mm. But the, the the rail journeys that um, would basically replace these flights would need to be under two hours and a half. And mm-hmm. when you put that limit that's quite low and then on top of that exempt all of these um hubbing flights so all of the flights that basically uh, connect um airports to a hub to mm-hmm. then go on to an inter- intercontinental uh, intercontinental flight these would be excluded if these were excluded then you'd end up with actually addressing only 0.8% of french um domestic emissions uh, so the effectiveness of these measures are maybe political, you know, signaling that aviation, the aviation sector needs to change. And but the effectiveness in terms of emissions is very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not only because, you know, the policy in itself isn't uh, done properly, but also because you're only focusing on short haul flights, which, as I said before, are only a small chunk of the problem. Right, right. And on, um, and, and on private jets as well. Um, I think it was earlier this year, wasn't it? Emmanuel Macron or, or someone. I don't know if it was Clément just a, yeah, yeah. It was a, was a cursory aside, or if it was a serious policy about mm-hmm. looking into this. Um, what's your take on on that kind of policy? So private jet. So the the private jets issue is much more interesting because um, I mean it's it's especially interesting at the moment when you see a huge divide between a handful of billionaires flying uh, to go on holiday and the rest of us citizens trying to bear the cost of rising energy prices and mm-hmm. uh, you know inflation overall i think that's uh, that it, it it's good that this topic is coming um on top of the agenda of some policymakers at the moment because we see this the private jet sector as an opportunity to finance the decarbonization technologies for the rest of the aviation sector. Mm-hmm. Because uh, first of all, most private jets and most private jet routes, especially in Europe, are under 500 kilometers. So they're very short haul flights between Paris and Nice or Paris, Geneva, Geneva, Milan, Paris, London. I mean, these are all routes that can be replaced not only by a plane, uh, by a commercial plane, but also by rail. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what we're saying is that it's difficult uh, to consider banning these flights tomorrow, because if you ban them, then what are they going to do? They're going to fly maybe to other sunny destinations for holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're suggesting is, first of all, making sure that they pay the full price of their pollution, which mm-hmm. is 10 times larger than anyone using a commercial flight. 
So you need to price those emissions more fairly, need to make sure that they contribute to public coffers um, to help governments also finance either decarbonizing aviation, but also in general, um, you know, coming, uh, helping uh, low income families, dealing with energy crisis and all these things. But you need to make them to you need to contribute to to the fight against uh, climate change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so paying a full tax um, on their kerosene uh, tax on you know the use of private jets, the tickets that they're being sold, and then imposing a deadline and saying you have until 2030 to become zero emission. Mm-hmm. So forcing private jet users to say, well, it's either you. Continue, continue flying, but using zero emission technology, such as electric flights, hydrogen flights, because the first pilot projects of these flights are actually operating under 500 kilometers. So mm-hmm. the typical range that's being currently used by these private jets. Um, and then also financing alternative um, sustainable fuels, like e-fuels, so synthetic kerosene that is today um, you know, uh, a technology that hasn't been deployed yet sufficiently because it's quite expensive. And I think that we should be asking private jet users to bear the upfront cost of deploying these very expensive technologies. Because mm-hmm. once you do that and you bring those technologies to the market, they become cheaper to use for the rest of the aviation industry. Um, and so hopefully we can get them to, to um, let's say, benefit uh, the rest of us, um, and that we can maybe have a hope one day of flying mm-hmm. uh, without too much guilt. I mean, if we, we could probably uh, just sort of finalize the, the chat on um, on technology, you, you mentioned all the different sort of options that are in play for aviation, um, running uh, aircraft engines on 100% sustainable aviation fuel, mm-hmm. electric power, hydrogen. Um, you know, every single week there seems to be a different kind of announcement about um, some startup flying an electric plane, or you know, mm-hmm. Airbus saying that they're going to develop a hydrogen airliner. Uh, but then you get that mitigated with other announcements where you know Airbus scrapped its electric um, flight program a couple of years ago because mm-hmm. of COVID or something. How ser- What is your what is your take on the the seriousness that big companies like Airbus, Boeing, Embraer are approaching this? Are, are they Will they need to be forced to really invest in these technologies? Are they just going to be, you know, nice things that they can put on um, PR packs for now? Or do you get the sense that they are starting to take this issue seriously? And, you know, the, like you say, the dream of having a guilt-free, um, emissionless flight could actually be feasible within a couple of years mm. or longer. <laughs> yeah, um, I think... Uh... Well, I would hope that Airbus is serious about its plans, but um, let's say I'm a, an optimist, but a realist. And mm-hmm. we know in the past that the only way to push these technologies to market is through regulation. Mm-hmm. And we need, as I said, to make polluting more expensive so we get a market uh, or demand for these technologies. And then we need to mandate their use. Because it's we can't wait for Airbus to say, well, we're going to commit to hydrogen by 2035. And then it's going to be, oh, well, actually, it's going to be 2040 and then 2045. And in the meantime, airlines continue to burn kerosene and, and pollute our atmosphere. So I don't think that we should rely only on the industry. I think some parts of the industry are serious about trying to find solutions to continue existing because they see it as well. They understand the only way for them to continue having a a license to fly is if they go green. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But unfortunately, there's still a lot of resistance because also regulation-wise, we've been quite late. Uh, when you look at the road transport sector, one of the reasons why uh, we have electric vehicles now booming is also because the EU imposed, let's say, tougher and tougher standards when it comes to CO2 efficiency of cars to make sure that we phased out the internal combustion engine and phased in the electric vehicles. Um, now, of course, I'm not saying that we'll have an electric plane tomorrow, mm-hmm. um, but I think we're quite late. If we had maybe 10 years ago already started pricing kerosene more fairly, uh, imposing the use of zero emission technology, then we wouldn't be looking at the uh, question uh, in the way that we are today. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to uh, make sure that regulation to mandate the use of sustainable aviation fuels, to mandate the use also of zero emission technology is key. But it has to go hand in hand with pricing kerosene more effectively, because if you continue having kerosene that's so cheap and produced in amounts that are, you know, uh, limitless, you'll never change behavior. You'll never incentivize airlines to buy more expensive sustainable aviation fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's the same thing once hydrogen comes in and zero emission aircraft comes in. In order to use that, of course, airlines will have to bear the cost of it, um, but it, they, they need also uh, some help or some obligation, some incentive. Um, so you need a carrot in the stick, let's say. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah. my, uh, my final question, Jeremy, I guess on that point about you know the, the regulation is um, the stick and different incentives of the carrot. How I mean, this is very difficult to predict, and, and we'd all be rich people if we could. But how does the current <laughs> energy crisis um, affect aviation? Is that going to have a knock-on impact on kerosene, pushing the price up? So, you know, zero emission options do become by default more um, attractive, or do you think that the current situation will have um, not too much of an impact, should we say, on on this particular issue? Um, so I think, I mean, kerosene, the price of, uh, of fuel has always fluctuated um, yeah. and it's always gone up and down and up and down. And the, when it's up, that's when you have like all of these more fuel efficient planes coming to, mm-hmm. to the market because airlines are pushed for economic reasons, not for environmental reasons, to invest in uh, more efficient Boeings and, um, and, and Airbuses. Um, so... You know, energy prices increasing, of course, will affect uh, fossil fuel for airlines. But I think what's important with this energy crisis is to make sure that governments invest in renewable electricity. Um, Because I think when we look at the ways of decarbonizing aviation in in the next 20 to 30 years, we will need uh, a lot of renewable electricity to be able to create synthetic fuels and Mm -hmm. synthetic kerosene. Um, because hydrogen planes and electric planes, sure, can maybe work on some short distances, uh, as I said, but the the long-haul aviation or the long-haul planes and jets will need uh, a different type of uh, sustainable aviation fuel that can be dropped in the the engines, and that requires a lot of energy. Um, Mm. And so I think it's really about renewable electricity, about green hydrogen, uh, being deployed at scale, reducing the cost of producing green energy, and then also investing in direct air capture. So making sure that the CO2 that we use to produce these fuels, these synthetic fuels, is uh, from the atmosphere and not just you know, taken point source from a fossil fuel industry uh, somewhere 
and contributing mm-hmm. to basically, you know, giving a, a new lifeline to a to a refinery. That's that's not the point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I think you know, we'll, hopefully we'll get there. But I think we'll only get there if we invest in in the renewable electricity we need. Um, and maybe one final point I think we have to be also quite clear is that we cannot especially with the energy crisis that we're facing now, we understand that we can't go to the same levels of growth that we've seen post uh, pre-COVID. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't sustain the same levels of growth and hope that we'll produce enough renewable electricity to um, fuel all of all of the demand. Mm-hmm. And something that we're encouraging um, companies to do, and some corporations are actually looking into this, is reducing the amount of corporate flying already to 50% below 2019 levels. I think this is, let's say, a a low-hanging fruit that could be quite easy to reach, um, especially as we've seen during COVID, the use of Zoom and conferences online that we can attend instead of flying around, shaking a few hands and then coming back Mm -hmm. um, and and polluting on on long-haul flights. So, And that's why, coming back to your point around other measures from, you know, flight bans or limiting the numbers of flights like CO2 seedings and CO2 caps in, in some member states. I think these are all options that need to be explored because we need to manage the amount of flying that we're going to do in the next uh, 10 to 15 years because that's the only way we're going to reduce demand. Technology isn't going to save us in the next 10 to 15 years. We mm-hmm. can put in place all of the pillars we need regulation-wise to make that happen in 10, 15 years. But in the meantime, we don't have electric planes. We don't have green hydrogen. We need to make sure that we manage demand um, in order to make sure that we can then uh, decarbonize that demand. So it's really rationalize before you decarbonize. Mm -hmm. um, And hopefully we'll get there. So many policies that all have to come good at the same time. It's a the longer, <laughs> the longer, the longer in this game, the longer that becomes clear. And also, the longer you know, I mean, talk about energy and climate, the more it becomes clear that the more clean, clean renewable electricity you produce, um, the easier these policies will be to implement. Um, yeah, and the less dependent you are on also, you know, um, questionable uh, exactly. dictatorships and governments. Yes. Yeah, I think we're all starting to realize that finally. Uh, Joe, mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you for talking all about aviation, which is, um, I think, a really important topic as we um, we start this build up to COP and um, start to think about um, how countries can actually uh, hit their climate goals and so on and so forth. So thank you for being on the Policy Dispatch. Thank you, Sam. A pleasure to be here. Clearly then, the obstacles to achieving green aviation and banishing flug scam or flight guilt uh, are numerous. Whatever policies regulators go for, aviation is likely to clash with other sectors for resources like fuel feedstocks and funding for charging infrastructure, uh, so one would think that first movers stand to benefit greatly. As we heard from Joe Darden, there are plenty of vested interests standing in the way of the more ambitious policies, though. Now there's the small matter of this week's quiz. At the top of the show, I asked you, which country does aviation equal in terms of CO2 output, Brazil, Canada or Germany? Uh, The correct answer was Brazil at around 2.5%. Wow. Now, stay tuned to Foresight for more coverage in the coming months of transport issues and how they fit into the energy transition. And of course, check out Policy Dispatch's podcast, Older Sibling, What Matters, for even more insight and analysis. Check the website for details on how to access all of these amazing shows. Thank you once again for tuning into this week's episode. And until next time, goodbye for now.